Hi, and welcome to the Itchy Podcast. My name is Lindsay, and I'm the Managing Editor for Infection Control and Hospital Epidemiology, or Itchy. Itchy is the official journal of the Society for Healthcare Epidemiology of America. In each episode of the Itchy Podcast, we hear from authors of research articles recently published in the journal. Today's episode is the first of a two-part series covering the May 2019 issue. That's Volume 39, Issue 5. First up, we'll hear from Julia Simzak about her research on prescriber perceptions of an established pediatric antimicrobial stewardship program. Next, Dr. Ko Okamoto will tell us about his study on the impact of doffing errors on healthcare worker self-contamination when caring for patients on contact precautions. Lastly, Dr. Katherine Goodman is back to talk to us about her research on predicting the probability of perirectal colonization with CRE and other carbapenem-resistant organisms at hospital unit admission. And don't forget, although Itchy is peer-reviewed, this podcast isn't. So please be sure to go to the May issue to read the full articles discussed in today's episode. Now let's get started. Joining me first is Julia Simzak, first author on the article, Threatened Efficiency, Not Autonomy, Prescriber Perceptions of an Established Pediatric Antimicrobial Stewardship Program. Welcome to the podcast, Julie. Thank you so much. Uh, Can you start by telling me a little bit about the research that you conducted and what you found? Absolutely. So I uh, began a collaboration with the leaders of the Antimicrobial Stewardship Program at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, which is a stewardship program that's been along for quite a long time. Um, And they really wanted to better understand how prescribers at the hospital were perceiving how well the stewardship program ran. And so we developed a survey to survey clinicians across the institution who were affected by the stewardship program, really to understand their perceptions of the value of the program, areas that they were concerned about. Um, And we were also really interested in looking at prescriber workarounds to stewardship, which is something that I am very interested in in my research as a sociologist is when prescribers sort of circumvent stewardship recommendations to get antibiotics that they want. We were kind of curious to understand whether that was happening and for what reasons. And so we administered this survey. It had both closed-ended and open-ended questions uh, to individuals across the institution. And so we were really delighted. We had a 41% response rate, which is actually quite good for physician surveys of clinicians who responded. And really the key takeaways from the study were that we found that the prescribers at this institution had a very favorable impression of the program. They believed that it improved the quality of care that children received. They believed that the stewards were cordial, communicative, respectful of their judgment, which is something that we were interested in investigating because there's a lot of literature, particularly for newer stewardship programs, about countering prescriber resistance because they feel that the stewardship program is kind of not taking their autonomy seriously or sort of Uh, you know, getting in the way of them making clinical judgments, uh, and there's a lot of conflict. And so we were interested in that, but we didn't find that at all. We found that there, there was a perception that the stewardship program was very respectful, but we did find that the most common criticism that was repeated 
both um, in the free text responses as well as in the closed-ended responses, was that there was a lot of problems with efficiency in related to the stewardship program in terms of the way that recommendations were communicated um, electronically, in terms of gaps between uh, what the stewardship team ultimately decided and what the, for example, the prescribing pharmacy understood. And so our respondents suggested that there were a lot of communication delays in terms of approving and dispensing antibiotics, which they found to be both frustrating because it involved lots of phone calls and concerning in terms of the del delays possible in medication administration. We also found that respondents admitted to many admitted to engaging in workarounds. So 68% of respondents said that they occasionally engaged in workarounds basically to get around stewardship recommendations, which we were you know, sort of surprised that the number was so high. But what we found in the free text responses that the reasons that were given for the workarounds really were well thought out reasons. They were not just because it was sort of rejecting what the stewardship team said. It was had a lot to do with complex situations in which they either um, were dealing with a very sick patient and they had this emotional response to do everything possible for the patient in cases where it was a nurse practitioner or a resident who was in communication with the stewardship team. They often described times where their attending physician didn't agree with stewardship recommendations and so put pressure on them to sort of work around the steward recommendation. And these individuals described feeling sort of caught in the middle of the sort of what the stewardship team was saying and what their ultimate supervisor was saying. And so we found that these work reasons for workarounds were really kind of nuanced. And so, so we, were, we were happy that frontline prescribers were, had favorable opinions about the stewardship program but we realized that there's a lot of room for improvement in terms of how to implement it moving forward in terms of reducing um, the inefficiencies, the communication delays, and sort of figuring out ways in which to meet prescribers where they are to try to reduce the number of workarounds that are occurring. Thank you. Can you tell me a little bit about uh, why this article in particular is relevant or important to itchy readers? Sure. I think that a number of itchy readers are either um, have been tasked with beginning a stewardship program or maybe are running and administering a stewardship program that's been around for a little for a while. Um, and I think in general, the main takeaway for individuals who are who are sort of administering stewardship is the critical importance of eliciting prescriber perceptions of the stewardship program. And I think at various stages um, in terms of sort of both understanding why prescribers may or may not agree with recommendations, how they feel about the way program activities are implemented, and if they have suggestions uh, for ways to improve the administration of the program. Um, and I think that these data can be useful in terms of figuring out how to optimize program impact and reduce any kind of conflict between stewards and frontline prescribers. And, and the approach that we took was really um, low resource. It was a survey and the instrument will be available for individuals to um, look at in relation to the paper. Um, we did that, we administered it online through email. It was, a, it was a pretty quick process. So in terms of optimizing stewardship, I think the model of eliciting what we think of as end user feedback is really valuable. But from the more generalized principles around prescriber 
perceptions of the concept of stewardship. So in terms of the literature around the social and behavioral drivers of why prescribers engage with stewardship and may change their behavior. I think that our study really finds that over time, it's likely that the concerns around threatened autonomy or clinical judgment may sort of wane um, and that and that prescribers are open and accepting of stewardship, especially if the stewardship team is seen as good communicators and, um, you know, and that they are perceived to bring value um, to the clinical, the, the delivery of clinical care. And I think that, you know, that is really a good sign because a lot of programs, when they start out, they get a lot of pushback. Um, and so I think it's a hopeful story in that sense that maybe over time prescribers become more accepting of the recommendations. And then I think it continues to contribute to the literature around the complexity of workarounds in terms of many of the reasons why people are working around has to do with complex social and emotional uh, factors that shape the delivery of clinical care. Thank you, Dr. Simzak. I have one more question for you, and that is uh, whether or not the this study or its limitations raised any additional research questions that you'd like to see investigated. Absolutely. I think all of my research spawns a number of new questions um, in terms of both the limitations of the methods used and just the, the curiosity surrounding the findings. And so I would say the first question has to do with you know, we this was a survey that was administered at one point in time, and so we did not have pre-data, so we didn't really get to see how attitudes about the stewardship program changed over time, which I think is a is an important limitation and one that perhaps future research should investigate. So in the future, in looking at stewardship interventions to do these kinds of attitudinal surveys prospectively, so we get this kind of data over time is one takeaway. Um, the other is really trying to do some deeper qualitative research on, on what effective stewards do to secure such respect and um, appreciation from frontline prescribers. And, and I'm very interested in communication and stewardship. And so I'm very curious about what about these, this stewardship team or other stewardship teams shape how prescribers perceive the value because I think that a lot of stewardship is about communicating recommendations, communicating guidelines, and in some cases, you know, um, having to tell people that they can't have something may or may not cause a particular response in a prescriber. And so I think while we found that in this particular institution that there was positive feelings towards the stewards, we didn't really get much detail on what about the stewards made people feel that way. And so um, future research should really consider what kind of um, communicative and behavioral strategies do successful stewards use? Great. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Simzak, for taking time to speak with us today. Um, and listeners can look forward to reading the full article in the May issue. Thank you so much. Joining me now is Dr. Ko Okamoto, first author of the article entitled Impact of Doffing Errors on Healthcare Worker Self-Contamination When Caring for Patients on Contact Precautions. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Okamoto. Thank you so much for inviting on. Can you start off by telling me a little bit about yourself and then tell me about the research that you conducted and what you found? Okay, uh, I'm currently working at a University of Tokyo Hospital in Japan, but uh, when I did, uh, did my research, I was a research fellow at Rush University Medical Center, Chicago. Um, 
talking about uh, the research we did, the, first of all, the background, the, although much is known about the importance of patient and environmental contamination, as well as hand hygiene in the context of hospital transmission of multi-drug resistant organism, the role of errors in donning and doffing of personal protective equipment is incompletely understood. So we assess the impact of personal protective equipment doffing errors on healthcare worker contamination with multidrug resistant organisms. Healthcare workers uh, who care for patients on contact precautions for multidrug resistant organisms, such as methylene resistant Staphylococcus aureus or vancomycin resistant enterococci or multidrug resistant gram negative bacilli, were enrolled in four adult ICUs at Russian University Medical Center in Chicago. Mm-hmm. Samples were collected from standardized area of patient body, garbage and high-touch environmental surfaces in patient rooms. Healthcare workers, hands, gloves, uh, personal protective equipment, and equipment were uh, sampled before and after patient interaction. Then research personnel observed uh, uh, personal protective equipment doffing and coded errors based on Center for Disease and Control Prevention guidelines. Mm-hmm. We enrolled uh, in total 125 healthcare workers and found that 45, namely 36% of healthcare workers, were contaminated with the target um, multi drug resistant organism after patient interactions, including four on hands and 38 on personal protective equipment. Overall, 49 healthcare care workers made multiple doffing errors and were more likely to have contaminated uh, clothes following a patient interaction with risk ratio of 4.7. All four healthcare workers uh, with hand contamination made doffing errors. The risk of hand contamination was higher when gloves were removed before gloves uh, during uh, doffing with with a relative risk of 11.8, meaning when they remove glove first before gowns, they had 11.8 fold higher risk of hand contamination. Mm-hmm. When caring for patients on contact precautions for multi-drug resistant organisms, uh, we thought healthcare workers appear to have the differential risk for hand contamination based on their methods of doffing personal protective equipment. An intervention as simple as reinforcing the preferred order of doffing may reduce healthcare worker contamination with multidrug resistant organisms. Great, thank you. And uh, can you tell me a little bit about why this research is important to itchy readers? Sure. Contamination of healthcare workers with multidrug resistant organisms after personal protective equipment removal is very common in busy clinical settings. Our finding highlights the potential role of personal protective equipment donning and doffing in hospital transmission of multidrug resistant organisms. So something as simple as education could possibly have an impact. This is the area where further improvement is needed in the future. And Dr. Akamoto, my last question for you is, did this study or the limitations of this study raise any future research questions that you'd like to investigate? Thank you. Uh, There were some limitations 
in our study. First, observation were performed in a clinical setting, and the complex nature and rapidity of personal protective equipment donning and doffing could have led to, uh, to inaccurate coding despite our best effort to ensure accuracy. Similar studies in different institutions would be warranted to confirm our findings. Lastly, we did not use molecular methods to verify that multi-drug resistant organism strains isolated from healthcare workers, patients, and environment in our study during patient interactions were the same. However, whole genome sequencing is underway to better elucidate transmission dynamics for healthcare worker contamination in adult intensive care units. So please stay tuned. Great, thank you so much for taking time to speak with us today and tell us a little bit about your research. Thank you so much for, for letting me uh, introduce my research. Our last guest today is Dr. Katherine Goodman. Welcome back to the podcast, Dr. Goodman. Thank you. Dr. Goodman is the first author of an article entitled, Predicting Probability of Perirectal Colonization with Carbapenem-Resistant Enterobacteriaceae and Other Carbapenem-Resistant Organisms at Hospital Unit Admission. Dr. Goodman, can you tell us about your research and what you found? Sure, absolutely. Um, so thanks for having me and for the opportunity to tell listeners a bit about this paper. Um, I'm currently a postdoctoral fellow at the University of Maryland, Baltimore, um, but this research was part of my dissertation at Johns Hopkins, which is where I recently received my PhD in epidemiology. And our goal in this project, um, as the title suggests, was to develop algorithms using machine learning methods to predict a patient's probability of colonization um, with carbapenem-resistant Enterobacteriaceae, or CRE, or with other carbapenem-resistant organisms, such as the glucose non-fermenters, um, which we collectively refer to as CROs. And so these organisms have been designated as an urgent threat by the CDC. Um, and this is due to their high infection mortality rates, um, and quite alarmingly, their potential for rapid spread through healthcare environments. And there are important reasons to believe that identifying silent carriers uh, who are colonized but are not suffering from symptomatic infections could be an important infection control target. Um, the challenge, though, is that it's really not practical at present to consider screening everyone in acute care settings. Um, these tests can be expensive, or even where they aren't expensive, they're often labor-intensive. And so I was very fortunate that my PhD advisor and the senior author on this paper, Dr. Aaron Millstone, and his collaborators had funding through the CDC EpiCenters program to perform this screening. Um, and the ultimate hope would be that you could design user-friendly algorithms to identify patients uh, based upon their clinical and demographic characteristics that have a high risk of being carriers and you would then refer only this targeted subset for screening at admission. And so in our study, we did screen nearly 3,000 admissions to the medical intensive care unit and the solid organ transplant unit at the Johns Hopkins Hospital. And this was over a one-year period in 2016 and 2017. And what really made this study feasible um, is that both of these units have longstanding surveillance programs already in place for VRE, uh, whereby patients receive perirectal swabbing at unit admission and weekly thereafter. 
And so our study retained these otherwise discarded VRE swabs and through validated recovery methods, processed them for CRE and other CROs. All CROs were also worked up for carbapenemase production and carbapenemase genotyping. And we found that overall 7.5% of patients were perirectally colonized with a CRO at unit admission, and a little over 1% were colonized with a CPO or carbapenemase producing organism. And the CPOs that we identified um, comprise many different species and carbapenemase genes, uh, probably more than we traditionally see in clinical isolates or in data from outbreaks. And so that was one interesting um, and possibly somewhat unexpected finding. For our prediction models, we then collected more than 125 different variables from the EMR um, that captured clinical and demographic characteristics at unit admission or up to a year prior. And we used machine learning methods to construct models to then predict based on these variables, either CRO, CRE, or CPO carriage. Um, and one of the nice things about these methods is that even with relatively rare outcomes, um, they're still capable of parsing this many input variables. Now, now that said, unfortunately, in our data, um, none of the models were highly successful um, as they had very high specificity, but poor sensitivity. And so we performed um, extensive sensitivity analyses to pressure test these results. And we also tried some other different methods, um, but the net result was pretty much unchanged. Uh, what our model did consistently identify though, and I think this is important, is that recent prior CRO or CRE positive culture um, was by far and away the strongest predictor of current carriage. And we were seeing consistency in that result across all of our different models. The models also did successfully identify a certain patient subset with very high accuracy. And that was patients that had a recent CRO positive history um, who also had had about a month or more of proton pump inhibitor usage um, in the prior three months. And so these patients had, in fact, the highest probability of colonization at admission in our data. Um, in this case, that was, in fact, above 90%. Can you talk a little bit about the important takeaways from your study for itchy readers? Sure. Um, we think that there are a few important takeaways from this study um, that we would like to highlight. And first, you know, at base, we, we haven't had a lot of literature around colonization in domestic inpatient settings, um, especially of the non-fermenters. And so I think simply adding some data points around CRO and CPO prevalence um, is itself informative. Um, and of course, what we found is that one of every 10 to 15 patients entering these units may in fact be bringing in these organisms undetected. Um, and unfortunately, in our data, in fact, the majority of these patients were not already on contact precautions for other indications. And so the burden here um, and the potential for onward transmission is not insignificant. Second, Obviously, no one ever likes to see their models fail to meet their targets, um, but I do think it's an important reminder that the EMR and other, you know, quote-unquote big data sources, um, they aren't necessarily a panacea for these types of epidemiological exercises. And so, of course, your data, um, one, is only as good as what's making its way into the EMR. And I think we say that a lot, but sometimes we have to pause and really consider what, what that means. In fact, here, though, 
we actually think that our poor sensitivity um, was probably not driven by data quality issues, um, but rather actually by the considerable heterogeneity that we were seeing in the colonization isolates. And so what this means ultimately is that there may be so many different acquisition routes and predictors in play here um, that we start to question how useful targeted screening algorithms for colonization can actually be. Third though, and, and what is probably the most important takeaway and, and also fortunately the most promising, is that many infection control programs are likely already capturing patients with what we found to be the strongest predictor of colonization, and that's a recent CRO or CRE positive culture. And we also found in conjunction with that, that actually up to a third of our CRO and CPO colonized patients were co-colonized with VRE. And that's VRE that would have already been detected during the routine admission screening in these units. And so what this suggests is that A, um, existing screening policies probably have unrecognized benefits with respect to CRO colonization, um, and B, that they may be performing about as well as we would hope that a targeted screening program would perform anyways. Great, thank you. And lastly, do you have any future plans for this research? Um, we, we do. And so in terms of next steps, um, we have a few additional plans for this data, uh, some of which are actually in process now. And one is that, quite simply, uh, we don't want to throw in the towel just yet. And so, as I touched on previously, um, machine learning methods are more robust to rare outcomes than traditional statistical methods. Um, but this imbalanced data, as it's called, it can still be problematic. And so, one effort that is underway now is to pull in another six months of data that is available um, as well as to combine our data with some other local institutions to see if we can achieve any better performance um, or other performance gains with these models. We'll also be looking at what happens to patients once they actually enter the study units um, in terms of acquiring CRO colonization if they entered negative and the transmission that comes from silent carriers. And so a particular interest of mine is whether we will see differential transmission probabilities based on whether the isolate produces a carbapenemase. Um, and fortunately, this study is well-placed to examine these questions um, in an unbiased fashion because, you know, since I mentioned previously, we pinged off of an existing VRE surveillance program, and so the colonization results were unknown to floor staff. And so these are questions that we are currently evaluating now um, and are very much excited to dig into further. Thanks, Dr. Goodman, for taking time to speak with us today. This concludes this episode of the Itchy Podcast. Be sure to download episode four to hear more from the May 2019 issue. Thanks for listening.